Thank you for heading back to your seats as we prepare for the message today. Thanks for being here. Thanks if you're visiting with us uh, in person or online. We're always very grateful to have guests and visitors. And my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And if you are new today, we're, we're at the beginning of a brand new series we're starting on the book or letter of First Peter. Uh, and so we're going to be doing sort of an introduction to that book today. Going to be looking at the first two ch- verses in First Peter 1 uh, as just a way to kick this series off. And so the title for the message today is called Elect Exiles. Well, if you've been around the Christian community for a while... Uh, you might be familiar with uh, the pamphlet called Four Spiritual Laws. Anybody remember that? Uh, we used to use it a lot around the church here for many years. It's still pretty widely used, and a lot of campus ministry is actually produced by Campus Crusade, I believe, Bill Bright. Um, and it's a pamphlet that Christians use to share the message of the gospel with people. And if you were to open that pamphlet up, the first spiritual law that you would see is, um, if we could pull up that next slide, is God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Now, that's certainly true in the big picture of things. However, nowhere in that track or pamphlet, does it mention that God's wonderful plan might include suffering because you're a Christian? I mean, I get it. Adding that point probably wouldn't be the most winsome way to share your faith, right? Uh, Because nobody, nobody likes suffering. And the Christian faith and suffering, in many ways, it it just don't seem to fit together, particularly in our experience here in America. I mean, we come to faith in Christ, and there's this often a joy and a sense of newness in life, and we many times we experience a time where God is clearly working in our lives to change us in ways that are good, and Uh, We join a church community where we find others who can identify and relate to our journey. And then when the response that we get from others, people outside the church, as we try to live out the Christian life, if it leads to suffering or feeling hostility and rejection from people, it can be perplexing. It can be confusing. It can make us wonder if we're doing something wrong in some way. And that's really exactly what was going on with the people that Peter is writing this letter that we call 1 Peter to. Because they are living throughout the area which we would know as modern-day Turkey. If you pull up that map for me, please. Uh, There it is, and that's an area of the world that's getting a lot of attention these days because it's right across the Black Sea from Ukraine. Um, But Peter is writing to them. He's writing from Rome, and his audience would be both Jews and Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ throughout that area. And they're just trying to live out their Christian lives in a faithful way in the places where God has them. 
and they are experiencing hardship and suffering as they seek to do so. What kind of suffering are they experiencing? Well, it's probably not so severe that they're being martyred or killed for their faith. But as a matter of fact, Peter gives us a little bit of a clue in 1 Peter 5, 9, where he says this. He says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So this just seems to be the day-to-day kinds of suffering that come from just trying to live out your Christian life faithfully in a world that is hostile to true Christianity. The hurt and rejection when people distance themselves from you and want nothing to do with you. Maybe being mocked for your faith or talked about in a demeaning way, being insulted. Maybe it's experiencing threats and intimidation when your views as a Christian differ from the mainstream culture and your Christian values threaten the self-interests of others in some way. Maybe it's something like unfair treatment from the authorities in employment or government. You're, you're passed over for that promotion or you don't get the job because maybe people know you're a Christian. And so they are perplexed and confused as they encounter this hostility and the suffering it causes. And so Peter, wanting to pastor them and care for them, writes this letter to them. And his purpose in writing is to help them understand, first of all, why they are suffering, and to show them how to respond as they experience that reality in their lives. And so our text for today is 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, which is just the opening greeting of this letter. And you know, sometimes we can be quick to pass over the greeting in a letter in the Bible like this, because it can seem like it's, it's just a formality before we get to the real content. But that would be a mistake in this letter, because the greeting in verses 1 and 2 is really an important key in helping us understand this letter. It really frames everything that follows in what Peter writes. In these two verses, Peter greets these believers by first defining who they are. And their identity and who they are is critical to understanding why they're experiencing suffering and to knowing how they should respond to it. And really what Peter says in these two verses, it's not just relevant for those Christians living in ancient Turkey. It, it doesn't just define their lives. It is just as true and relevant for every one of us sitting here as Christians today. It defines our lives as believers as well. See, what Peter wants these believers to know, what God wants us as believers to understand from this text is that suffering as a Christian is to be expected because of who you are. And that's really kind of the big idea in the message today. Suffering as a Christian is to be expected because of who you are. So let's look at these 
two verses together as we kick this off. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Before we dig into this a little deeper, let's take a moment and pray and ask God for his help. Lord, as we come to this letter, Lord, suffering is not our normal experience here in American Christianity. But Lord, I don't know that that's always going to be the case as time goes on. And so, Lord, you've given us this letter to prepare your people for the realities of what it means to live in a hostile world that is hostile to you and the Christian faith in times. And so, Lord, I ask that you would use this letter to strengthen, to prepare, to build your church. Lord, that it might be ready and able to walk through times like that if they should come upon us. Uh, Lord, that we would understand Lord, what your purpose and why those things are taking place. And so, Lord, let your spirit come now and fill this place with your presence, that you might bless your people today for your glory and their good. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So in these two verses, there are really two things we want to look at today that Peter says define every follower of Jesus Christ. And the first one is... You are elect. In verse 1, he says, to those who are elect. Now, to be elect simply means to be chosen. I mean, for example, let's say that you decide to get into politics and you want to run for the state senate. So you run for the state senate, the office of state senator, and when election day comes, people vote. And if you get the most votes, you are elected to the senate, right? So you are elected, you are chosen by the people to represent them as a state senator. And so if you're a Christian, Peter says God has personally and purposefully chosen you to be his. Verse 2 really develops and explains how you came to be one of God's elect. And there are three things Peter tells us in verse 2 to help us understand kind of how it works. And he begins with, he says, you were chosen by God the Father. In verse 2 it says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, the phrase according to has the idea of it's what you're being chosen was determined by or based upon. In other words, using our state senate example, if you are chosen by the people, you're chosen according to the will of the people. It's the will of the people that chose you to represent them. And so here, Peter says, your being chosen was determined by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, foreknowledge here doesn't mean that God kind of looked forward into time 
and saw that you would one day put your faith in Christ and be his, that really changes the whole idea of what it means to be chosen. Because in that, in that way of thinking, you're the one doing the choosing, right? And God's just seeing and acknowledging what you're doing. It's like if you run for the state senate and you decide, I'm going to be a state senator and I choose that I'm going to do that and the people really don't have a say. Well, that takes the whole idea of choosing and flips it around into something that does violence to the concept of it. And so this is not a, a knowing ahead of time things about you or what you would do. This is a foreknowing of you as a person. God foreknew you in a, in a special way. Paul talks about this quite a bit in Romans, the book of Romans. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. In Romans 8, verses 29 through 30, Paul says this. He says, For those whom he foreknew, talking about God, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul says it's those whom God foreknew, and in foreknowing them, he predestined, he determined beforehand that they would be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, this is really speaking of your eternal destiny as a Christian. When Jesus comes back and your resurrection is complete and you are made into his image in that time, made like him. And notice he says that everyone that he predestined for this, he called. And everyone that he called, he justified, which means he declared them righteous. He made them righteous through what Jesus did. And those in all that he justified, he will glorify one day. And so it's those whom God foreknew. Paul talks about this again in Romans chapter 11 as he's addressing the question of if, if the Jews are God's chosen people and so many of them, almost all of them, rejected Jesus as the Messiah God sent to them, does this mean that God has rejected his people, that he's rejected the Jewish people? And so Paul kind of addresses that in 11, Romans chapter 11, 1 through 5. He says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? And he says, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So in other words, Paul's saying, you know, has, because all the, the Jewish people seem to have turned away and rejected Jesus as the son, does that mean, as the Messiah, does that mean God's rejected his people? And Paul says, no, by no means. He said, I'm a Jew, and I'm a believer. So God hasn't rejected the people whom he foreknew. And he goes on to give an illustration from the Old Testament 
um, from 1 Kings when Elijah, who just coming off of his victory over the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, was being persecuted and chased, and they were trying to kill him. And so he runs away and appeals to God and says, Lord, all of Israel has turned against you, and I'm the only one left. And so Paul quotes from that. He says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? And this is God's answer to Elijah. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so Paul's argument is that God kept for himself 7,000 people that were his chosen people that did not fall into that idolatry. And so Paul concludes in the last part, he says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant. In other words, there are some Jewish people who will respond to this Messiah Jesus and will choose to follow and come to him. But that remnant is chosen by grace. It's chosen by God's grace. So you see, here's the thing. God knew you and chose to make you his before the world ever came into existence. God knew you as one of his own before you were ever born. And he chose to set his covenant love on you such that you would belong to him. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, Paul says this. He says, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, it's, it's only because God foreknew you and chose you to be his. I mean, for reasons that really we can never fathom, God set his love upon you and me and determined to do everything that it would take to secure us as his own. I mean, this same God who created the universe with a word has personally looked upon you and declared, this one is mine. He's chosen you and determined to love you with an everlasting love as one of his elect. And men and women, that should really leave us shaking our heads in wonder and awe that God in his grace would look upon us and choose us out of the universe to be his. So your being one of God's elect began with God for knowing you and choosing you to be his. But Peter goes on in verse 2, and the second thing he says is that you were set apart for God by the Holy Spirit. Verse 2 says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, to sanctify something is to set it apart for God and his purposes. And really, this is primarily referring to what happened when you came to faith in Christ at your conversion, if you will. 
See, God chose you to be his before the world was ever made, but there came a point in time when he acted on that choice to exercise his claim upon your life, and the Holy Spirit accomplished that in your life. The Holy Spirit worked in your life to open your eyes that you might see and understand the gospel message, that you might see it as truth that it was, that you might see that you needed a Savior, and that you might see that Jesus was that Savior and choose to trust him in your life. That's the Spirit working to open your eyes to do that. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says that it was God who shone light, just like God shone light to bring out of darkness to make creation. It says God shone light into our hearts to open our eyes to see and understand the truth of who Jesus was and what he did and that we needed him to be a savior for us. God did that. That was the spirit sanctifying, setting you apart for God and his purposes. This is, if we, go back, if we were to go back to Romans 8.30 where it says, those he predestined, he called. This is the calling. God calls them to himself. And he says, those he called, he justified. So he brings them in such a way that they will be declared righteous through the sacrifice of Jesus. You know, when I think about my own testimony of how I came to faith in Christ, I, I would be so aware of this reality because for my adult life, I, I, it, was th- I, it was about 30 years old, 31 when I came to faith in Christ. Um, and for all of my adult life, you, you couldn't have found someone who was more hostile to Christianity than I was. I mean, I had really, I mean, I wasn't an atheist because to be honest, in those years, I really didn't care enough about God to have that much of an opinion about him. So maybe you would have called me an agnostic because I just didn't know or care. And there would be times when people tried to talk to me about Jesus and I despised those conversations. And I remember telling people regularly that I thought that religion was just a crutch for people who didn't have the guts to make it on their own. And that was my attitude. You couldn't have found someone more hostile. In those times when people would try to talk to me about Jesus, I could feel the hostility coming up in me towards anything related to that message. Until one day. And I remember I was sitting in a a training session on my job, and as we're getting towards the end of the day there, all of a sudden I'm... I'm struck by this sense, this strong sense, that the person who's doing this training, who I've never met before in my life, is somehow supposed to play some important role in my life. Now, if you knew me, that would have been the strangest thing in the world because I was very analytical, very much a a mental mind kind of person, and so having some kind of sense like that would have been the last thing in the world that would have happened to me. But as I sat there and I was trying to sort it out, I just couldn't shake it. 
And it was so strong of a sense that, as crazy as this sounds, afterwards I went up to this person and I said, I know this is going to sound crazy, <laughs> but somehow I feel like you're supposed to play some kind of important role in my life. You know? Well, uh, they looked at me like I was crazy a little bit. Um, and they just asked me, Chris, said, well, what's your spiritual life like? And I said, you mean God and stuff like that? She said, yeah. I said, well, I don't really mess around with that. And so, but anyway, I couldn't shake that sense of feeling, so I contacted them later to try to figure out what was going on, which led to several conversations we began to have about the Bible and Jesus. And except this time, there wasn't hostility. I, I listened, and I heard, and I saw, and I understood and I believed. And in this person's living room, I chose to turn and put my faith in Jesus Christ one night. And so what, what, an, what, an, what a turnaround that was in my life. I didn't do that. That was God's spirit at work in me to bring me to that place. And not everybody's story is as dramatic as mine. In some cases, you're not even aware that the spirit is at work doing this. But if you're here as a Christian today, it's because the Spirit worked in your life to sanctify you or set you apart for God and His purposes. And you know, throughout the Old Testament, anything that was set apart for God and His purposes, it was holy. It was made holy by being sanctified unto God. And it was only to be used for holy purposes because it was holy. And so as Christians, we've been set apart to be holy in our lives and to be used by God for his holy purposes. And Peter really develops this idea much more extensively in the first two chapters of this letter. But just in 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16, he says this, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So as God's chosen ones, the work of the Spirit has sanctified us and set us apart to be God's holy people. But there's one more thing Peter says about how you became one of God's elect. He says you were redeemed by the saving work of Christ. In verse 2, he says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And the word for here has the idea of this is the result or the purpose of what has already been said. In other words, the purpose of God's foreknowing you and the Spirit sanctifying you is that this might be the result. So God the Father chose you to be His before the world was made. The Spirit came at the appointed time and sanctified you or set you apart for God and His holy purposes. And the result was that you understood the gospel message and you willingly chose to obey it and place your faith in Jesus Christ. 
And in verse 2, the word obedience, while it might include kind of the obedience of living out the Christian life, it's really referring primarily to the obedience of responding to the gospel, that you obeyed the gospel's call to put your trust in Christ. So Jesus' saving work became effective in your life when you believed and placed your trust in him as your Lord and Savior. He redeemed you and purchased you for God by his death and resurrection. And his sacrifice secured the forgiveness of your sins and brought you into a new relationship with God. When you believed the gospel message and trusted in Christ, Peter says you were sprinkled with his blood. See, it was the saving work of Christ through the blood he shed on the cross that secured the forgiveness of your sins. His sacrifice on the cross brought you into this covenant relationship with God as one of God's chosen people. See, here's the thing. There is no disharmony in the Bible between your genuine choice to put your trust in Jesus and God's sovereign choosing of you. There's no disharmony between those two in Scripture. Both are clearly portrayed in Scripture as part of how you came to faith in Jesus. And so that's what Peter says brought you and me into a relationship with God as one of his elect. It really took the entire Trinity, if you think about it, Father, Son, and Spirit to accomplish that. The Father chose us to be His. The Spirit set us apart for God and His purposes when the right time came, opened our eyes to see and believe the gospel, and the Son's saving work accomplished the forgiveness of our sins and brought us into this covenant relationship with God as His elect when we chose to trust him as our Lord and Savior. And that's what it means to be one of God's elect. So let me ask you, does that word describe you as you sit here this morning or as you listen online this morning? Are you one of God's elect? Because if so, you know, we should be Grateful beyond measure. That's the response that should produce that God would be so gracious and merciful to us as to choose us, send his spirit to set us apart, send his son to purchase our redemption. And you know, it, it wasn't anything in us or about us that would cause God to choose us or love us this way. It's purely by his great mercy and grace that he chose to set his love on us and choose us for himself. But that doesn't mean that you aren't precious and valuable to him. Just because it wasn't anything in us or about us that was the cause of God choosing us to be his doesn't mean that you are not incredibly valuable and precious to him. Because here's the thing, you know, the the way you determine the value of something to someone 
is by the price they are willing to pay to obtain it. And when it comes to your life, God paid an infinitely high price to purchase you to be his. He gave his only son the thing that he loved more than anything in the universe to come and to suffer and to be crucified and to bear his judgment for your sins. What an incredible infinite price God paid so that you could belong to him. And so you are incredibly precious and valuable to God. But maybe, maybe you're sitting here wondering, well, how can I know? How, how can I know if I'm one of God's elect, if I'm one of his chosen ones? How can I know for sure? Well, really, the answer is really very simple. The answer is you believe. Because if you believe, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's the evidence that you're one of God's chosen ones. It's really as simple as that. And that's why God really invites all people who would choose to come to him to come. And whoever he says will come, whoever will believe, he promises that he will save. And so if you're sitting here today or listening online and, and you're not sure whether you really are one of God's elect, his chosen people, God's saying, believe. If, if the Spirit is working in your heart and life today to help you see your need for a Savior and that Jesus is the Savior God sent for you to rescue, redeem you, to save you from your sins, that's the Spirit at work in your life. And God just says, come. And if you come, he promises he'll save you. He'll apply Jesus' finished work to your life. But you know, when it comes to being one of God's elect, it's right here we begin to run into problems with the world around us. Because being set apart to God is holy, for his holy purposes, being called to obedience to Jesus Christ, it has implications for how we live. And that's where we begin to find ourselves in conflict with a fallen, hostile world. And that really leads us to the second thing we want to look at this morning that defines our identity as a believer. And the second thing Peter tells us that defines who we are is he says, you are an exile. In verse 1, Peter says, you, to those who are, who, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So what's an exile? Well, an exile is some, the definition is you, it's a, someone who's a stranger, an alien, not, not a space alien, but a foreigner, a sojourner, a pilgrim, if you will. It's someone who's living in a place that's not their true home. 
And it's not just that you're a stranger, but you're different and strange in a way that doesn't fit in with the society around you, that often draws attention and brings forth some degree of abuse. See, exiles live by different values, priorities, and allegiances than those around them. And we kind of see the image or the shadow of this reality in the Old Testament when the Jews were exiled to Babylon. And while they were exiled as judgment from God for their unfaithfulness to him, faithful Jews were to maintain their commitment to God and his ways during their time of exile. And this would bring them into the risk of persecution and suffering. We kind of can see this throughout the book of Daniel. If we read through the book of Daniel, we see a number of cases where this happened. When Daniel first gets to Babylon, and he's part of the king's court, if you will, and the king wants all the Jewish men that he's taken into his court to eat a diet that's specifically prepared by his chefs, if you will. But that diet violated the dietary restrictions in the Jewish law. And so Daniel and his friends appeal to the captain of the guard, can they just not eat this food and eat just vegetables? And that was a risky thing because to say that the king's food wasn't good enough, well, you could lose your life over that. But God showed favor to Daniel and they worked that out. And then when we move through a little further, we find that when King Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue of gold and says that everyone must bow down and worship it, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we can't do that. We can't bow down to this idol because that violates our commitment to our God. And what happened? They were, they, they were to be killed. They were thrown into a furnace where they were to be destroyed. But God miraculously intervened to spare them. And then even a little later, we see when some of the other court leaders kind of were trying to get Daniel and their hostility towards him. They convinced King Darius to pass a law that said, no one can pray to anybody but Darius for the next 30 days. But Daniel prayed three times a day to God, to his God. And so they set him up. And they caught him and they went to the king and said, hey, this guy Daniel, he's, he's not obeying your, your edict. And so Daniel was thrown into the lion's den where he was expected to be killed. God again miraculously intervened. And so we have these incredible stories of God's intervention as, as his people sort of stand up, if you will, against the, the hostility of the culture. But see, the reality is God doesn't always miraculously intervene. And there are times when we will experience the consequences of hostility and rejection and the suffering that it can cause. But that's how an exile is to live in a culture not their own. And Peter really intentionally refers to this Old Testament picture in verse 1 when he says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. 
See, the dispersion was the scattering of the Jews throughout the world after their homeland was destroyed by Babylon in 586 B.C. And Peter draws on this Old Testament imagery, as he often does in this letter, and applies it as being fulfilled in the reality of believers in the church. See, Peter says that as believers, we are set among a world of unbelievers as exiles. And as exiles, we will suffer for our faith in a world that finds our faith strange and distasteful as we seek to live out our commitment to God and his ways. Maybe it's the cold shoulders we get from people, being the object of jokes in the workplace or at school, insults, harassment, former friends who distance themselves from you now that you're a Christian. As faithful Christians, we're considered strange, and we don't fit in with this world. We give allegiance to someone the world doesn't know. And so if you seek to faithfully walk out a Christian life that honors God and follows Jesus, suffering as a Christian is to be expected because of who you are. I mean, just look at the life of Jesus himself. I mean, think about it. This was the Son of God, the perfect God-man who always did everything perfectly, like Cindy shared before the service, who was tempted but never sinned. He loved perfectly every moment. He always said the right thing. He always did the right thing. He was compassionate and gracious. He was the perfect representation of God. Now, you would think that a person like that, that they would be honored, they would be esteemed, they would be considered as someone worthy to be emulated and followed, right? But that was not Jesus' experience in his life. Isaiah describes it this way in Isaiah 53.3. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, <clears throat> a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. See, if that was Jesus' experience and he was the perfect, holy one of God, It will be the experience of those who seek to follow him as his disciples to some degree. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And you know, there are many places around the world where this reality is an ever-present thing in people's lives. I mean, there are many places around the world where Christians are being killed for their faith. And they are suffering persecution like we would have no concept of here in America. 
Because to be honest, here in America, we have been spared from the reality of suffering to a great degree because basically in the decades past, the cultural values of America have been pretty harmonious with Christian values. But that's changing. And as time goes on, more and more, the values of this culture are diverging from being harmonious with your Christian values. And as that divergence takes place and becomes more and more different and distant, the reality of the possibility of persecution and suffering becomes more and more real here, even in America. And you see, the wise time to prepare your soul for the possibility of suffering is before you find yourself experiencing it. And that's why the message of 1 Peter is very relevant to our day. See, 1 Peter is really a travel guide for how to live as an elect exile in an unbelieving world. Peter wants us to understand what living as an elect exile in a fallen, hostile world looks like. Because living as an elect exile is a call to be holy in a foreign culture. It's how you live in a society where God is not honored or obeyed. It's what it means to live in a culture that is hostile to the basic principles of the gospel. And if we faithfully live that way, we will experience a measure of suffering in our lives. And Peter doesn't want us to be surprised when that happens. He doesn't want us to be shaken when we encounter that reality. Because suffering as a believer is to be expected because of who we are. You see, elect exiles, they live in a culture and country that's not their own. And they have a country that they are waiting to get to one day. And when you experience hardship or suffering in this fallen, hostile world, just like those believers Peter's writing to in this letter, we need to know that there's a homeland waiting for us one day, a place where we truly belong. The writer in Hebrews describes it this way as he talks about all the Old Testament faith heroes that have passed away. He says in verses 11, 13, chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, for those who live as elect exiles in this fallen, hostile world, God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
And he's prepared for us a city where we will truly be at home. A place where there will be no suffering or death or sorrow ever again. A place where we will live as God's elect, but we will no longer be exiles. And we will live in the infinite joy and delight of God's presence and love forever in that eternal home. And so the Apostle Paul, as he considers the suffering we experience in this life as Christians and the future hope of that home, he says this in Romans 8.18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's no comparison. Whatever we may go through in this life, whatever we may experience in this life as we seek to live out our lives faithfully as elect exiles in this world, nothing can ever take that away from us. If I could have the worship team come and join me. So as we begin this journey with Peter on how to live as an elect exile, let me, let me just leave you with a few questions to reflect on to help you get ready. How do you see your life as a Christian? I mean, would you say you're living as an elect exile in the culture of this world? I mean, how much would the non-Christian people you encounter regularly in your life be aware of your Christian faith? How would they see your commitment to God being lived out in your life? Are you willing to live as an elect exile in this world as a disciple of Jesus? Even if that means you will encounter some degree of suffering as you do so? You know, in a sense, it's encouraging to know that believers have been struggling with these same kinds of issues since Peter's day. And as we wrestle with living as an elect exile in a fallen, hostile world, Peter wants us to know that God is right there with us as we seek to do so. And so Peter closes this greeting with these words at the end of verse 2. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And what strikes me about that verse is the word multiplied. Because it's not just that God will give us grace and peace. It's not just that that grace and peace will increase as we need it. But Peter says that grace and peace will be multiplied. It will be many times what is needed for us to live like this. See, experiencing the reality of suffering, it's never pleasant or easy. But it is to be expected in our lives as believers simply because of who we are. But as we seek to walk out being an elect exile in our day-to-day life, when we encounter rejection, hostility, and suffering of some sort, we can be sure that God is right there with us every minute 
of every day. And he will meet us along the way with an abundance of grace and an abundance of peace that will be more than sufficient to keep and sustain us until the day when we reach our true home. So let's close today by just standing and singing this song and declaring where that grace and peace is found in our lives.